Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Match Point Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Season keeps winding down, Mike. We just wrapped up the WTA Finals with Iga Sviantek collecting a title. We have the Billie Jean King Cup Finals getting going this week. Paris Masters, where Novak Djokovic was again a winner. And I had the opportunity as well to speak with Haddon McDaddy, a senior VP of High Performance Development for Tennis Canada and a former player himself. So as we're winding down into November, still a lot happening. We're almost there. We're almost the finish line and, uh, you know, mixed emotions when it gets to that, because as tennis fans, we want to keep watching big matches. We enjoy, you know, the best the sport has to offer on both the women's and the men's side. But at the same point, it's a grueling season for the players. It's a grueling season for tennis podcasters like ourselves, too. Uh, but let's look at the WGA finals in Cancun and and start with the positive before we talk about a few of the things that I'm sure our listeners are already pretty in tune with in terms of what could have been better. Um, for the season-ending event, and Iga Sviantek, and I think we both kind of mentioned this a week ago uh, as our pick to end up winning this event. There was a lot on the line for her, a lot that I feel like she wanted to prove, and she certainly did that in uh, working her way through the field. I felt like every match she won, there was at least one set where she really took it by either a bagel or a breadstick, it seemed like, and uh, and that didn't end in the finals where she really thrashed Jessica Pagula by uh, those score lines, uh, breadstick and a bagel, um, to emphatically uh, end the year as the best player on the women's tour. Yeah, I, I feel like this was a statement week for Iga Sviantek. And outside of everything that was going on in terms of dysfunction in Cancun with the mess of the venue, the disastrous conditions, all the issues all of these players uh, had, it seems like ego is just right down to business right away. And you look at the results and we have to remember, and you put it into context. I mean, we see Iga have runs like this at other tournaments, but this is against the eight best players in, in the world and the and eight best strong, players in the season. And a strong field. I mean, we mentioned that as yeah. well when we were leading up to it, that this seemed like the strongest, I don't know, the strongest eight ever maybe, right? But a strong, strong group of eight women vying for this title where, you could have looked at most of them and it, it might not have been a surprise if they went on a run or ended up taking it. But you just sort of felt like with Sviantec, there was added motivation and she seemed extra serious. And it, it doesn't surprise me, you know, the way she went about it. And and look at these scores. I mean, six love against Vondrasova in the last uh, set of their match, six love against Goff, six one six two over Jabur. 6-3-6-2 against Sabalenka, who we thought, you know, maybe be the two of them in the final. And then Pagula had been having a great tournament as well, but maybe just little left in the gas tank after playing singles and doubles and the scheduling difficulties, even with the Monday final, uh, to see Sviantec take it so decisively. Um, just really an exclamation mark for the Polish tennis player um, to assert herself at the end of this year. And, and now when next year starts, which isn't that far away, people are going to be looking to her once again to sort of, you know, lead things forward and and uh, and and jumpstart 2024 with, without doubt, without controversy, without debate over who the best player is in women's tennis right now. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And you have to be just blown away by, I think, the response from Iga since her disappointment at the U.S. Open. And we know she's had all these struggles with Yelena Ostapenko for whatever reason. But 
going out in the round of 16 there was such a big disappointment for her conceding that number one ranking, which she'd held for so many weeks, you know, she'd held it for over a year, almost a year and a half and just getting right back to it. I mean, in the Asian swing, she had a really dominant, but dominant performance to win the China open. I know she lost in Japan, but uh, if you look at the way she closes her season, finishing it out with 10 consecutive wins and you know, how many of those wins, five, six, uh, six of those wins against top 10 players. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's incredible. And all six of those wins coming in straight sets. And you mentioned the score lines with a handful of six loves and six ones sprinkled in. She is to me, you know, she never lost the title of best player in the world in my eyes when she did have that little dip in form. And as we eventually turn the calendar into 2024, she will again have that target on her back, I think, as the player to beat in the WTA. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, strong result from Jessica Pagula-Well, who played terrific throughout the event, uh, making the finals of an event like this. I mean, we haven't seen her in a Grand Slam final yet. Uh, maybe we will at some point. There's always been a little bit of that stigma around her that in the biggest events, she can't quite get to that final stage. But here she is reaching arguably the, the biggest match uh, or biggest moment of her singles career. And um, a little bit disappointing, however, to see it end that way for her um, by such a, a lopsided scoreline. Lala's group stage, though, and you look at the names she took out and we, we discussed having a big three on the women's tour, particularly kind of through the middle portion of the season where we saw Sabalenka, Rybakina, Iga trading off all these titles. Bagula dismantled Rybakina and Sabalenka in succession. I mean, 7-5-6-2 against maybe the biggest server on tour in Elena, and then 6-4-6-3 against Sabalenka, who did have that world number one title uh, now taken away. She defeated Zachary comfortably as well. And, you know, normally... When Pagula and Coco Goff show down, it's very tight and very close. And they've had some battles in the past. We know they're great friends. She beat her 6-2, 6-1. That was also very confident and comfortable. So uh, I think for Pagula, like the next stage for her, as you mentioned, is she has all the talent, all the skill set to make a Grand Slam final. And she hasn't been past the quarterfinal stage. So clearly... That's going to be probably, I, I would set that as the goal in 2024 to, to make a deeper run at a Grand Slam, uh, at a Grand Slam, give herself a chance at one of these titles because she's clearly capable of doing it. Yeah, and she's going to be turning 30 early on next year and has the experience and uh, has shown herself capable of beating the biggest players in the world at uh, a stage like the WTA Finals. So that would be the next logical progression and step for her would be to do that. And then on the other end, and it's interesting, the doubles partnership with her and Coco Goff, because there's 10 years between them, Goff still only 19 years old, which kind of blows my mind. I feel like she's been around so much longer. Um, and, and I think for Coco Goff, who we're going to see at the WTA Finals, you'd have to think many, many more times in the future. Uh, maybe a case of someone just kind of running out of gas after a very long season, uh, longest one she's ever had as a professional tennis player, and a very successful season, given what she accomplished back in the summertime, when really it was all about Coco. Oh, definitely. And I think it would kind of be natural to, to have almost like a bit of a U.S. Open hangover. Coco Goff at, at the end of her group stage to, to get through to the semifinals. She beat Vondrasova in three sets. 
Goff had 17 double faults that match. 17 double faults. Still fought her way through to to get the win. So that is a testament to her resiliency. Also a bit of a testament to the conditions, which played a massive role, I I think, in the results of that match. Just swirling winds, all this torrential downpour that the players were dealing with. I mean, her her holding that umbrella that suddenly went upwards (laughs) there and just kind of imploded upon itself. Pretty the visual you needed to see what it was like there. Imagine playing in those conditions. Um, let's just talk for a second about the WTA finals. And uh, it's it's really unfortunate because there was so much hype and excitement about the product that was getting on board. But I feel like it got overshadowed by some just really poor decision-making by the WTA organizers uh, and top-level brass who really got a look in the mirror. And I, I almost feel like, you know, I want to dramatize and say heads should roll, but someone should be accountable for making this decision at such a last-minute with an event that should be the celebration of a whole season worth of fantastic accomplishments in women's tennis. And instead what we have is, is players, media, everybody really saying, you know, could have been much, much better. As you said, I I mean, it it should be one of the marquee events of the season. It's one of the biggest events of the year on the calendar, without a doubt has the most prize money, uh, which is a a huge deal. And that was secured just a couple of years ago. So I'm just, I'm a little perplexed at how this has essentially happened two years running where they didn't secure their location and venue until last minute. It happened last year as well in Fort Worth. And so you don't have time to market and promote the events. You don't get the Stansville. I mean, the tennis crowd in Mexico we've talked about is fantastic. But if you secured Cancun maybe several months ago, maybe this works a little bit better. The venue is clearly not set up in place. Practice facilities were a mess. Players, uh, you know, one of the courts wasn't even surfaced yet, I think, as, as they got there, which is just, it's unacceptable for a marquee level event featuring the best women's tennis players in the world. I know the chairman, Steve Simon issued an apology letter saying they know they have to do better. Okay. We have to see it in 2024. Like no more excuses. Yeah. And then face the press, you know, step up to the plate and face the press and talk about it. You know, don't, don't hide away and and not answer questions that should be asked and should be addressed. And this is nothing against Cancun or Mexico. I think a fantastic mm-hmm. place to host tennis. We've seen it time and time again, but you got to give them fair warning to get those tickets out there, to get the corporate sponsors behind it. I mean, how can you leave something like this to the last minute? It's just a total embarrassment at the upper levels. And you want to grow the sport and promote it properly. And you've got fantastic athletes from all over the world. And you're really dropping the ball by not you know, doing a proper event with enough lead up and 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 warning and uh i just you know shame on them for doing it this way so you know that that's it for the wt finals for this year they got to get it right next year start planning that right now secure your venue right now and in the meantime you know let's look at another female event that's coming up women's event that's coming up that we're very excited for in part because canada is going to be there and that's the billy jean king cup yeah, a uh, huge opportunity, I think, for Canada heading in uh, with Layla Fernandez as the number one in singles. They also have Rebecca Marino there, Jeannie Bouchard, Gabby Dabrowski making the trip from Cancun. She and Aaron Routliff reached the semis of the WTA finals, getting three wins in the group stage, which was very impressive. And now Gabby's so committed uh, to this international event that she uh, traveled from Cancun over to Seville, Spain, which is where Canada will compete. And uh, I mean, we said this, I, I think, a couple weeks ago go that I love the group that they landed in Group C alongside Spain and Poland. Poland without Iga Spiontek. Spain does have former world number two Paula Badosa, but she hasn't played a match 
since Wimbledon. And we know Layla, honestly, she's finished her season so strong, getting her first title of the year, winning in Hong Kong, that I, I really like the makeup of this team. Great to see Jeannie Bouchard back in the mix. And uh, the youth presence with 18-year-old Marina Stakusik on the on the roster for the first time as well. They've got a lot of depth to go to here, and I do consider them really the favorite in their pool, considering Iga Sviantek's not there for Poland, and Paula Badosa, as you mentioned, hasn't played very much at all lately for for Spain uh, or for herself, really, on the WTA Tour. So that bodes well. Leila Annie Fernandez, as we've talked about in recent weeks, has really been hitting her stride, which is great. Gabby Dabrowski, we know, one of the best, you know, five doubles players in the world. Uh, that's going to give us a real edge in the doubles match where I would expect her and Layla to partner once again. They've had some chemistry in the past. In this team event, you got Rebecca Marina, who's a very competent number two slot behind uh, Layla for singles. And then you've got the depth of Jeannie Bouchard, who I don't necessarily expect will play, but she's somebody who has been there before, albeit you know a few years ago. Um, and you've got Marina Stakushik, who I think is a real ace wild card for Canada because not a lot of people know what she's all about, but she was the ITF Player of the Month for October. Followed that up by winning the Tevlin Challenger here in Toronto recently as well. So um, I, I like the mix of this squad, young, old, uh, veteran, um, you know, rookies. And, and I think good things could happen for them here in this event. Oh, definitely. And uh, as you said, just a, a great opportunity, the right mix, I think, and right blend of that youth and experience and pedigree. It's so huge to have Gabby making the trip to be there in doubles. When we look at some other contenders, and I was running down the list of nations here, 16 countries in all in Seville, Spain, the name that really stands out to me far and away here is is Chechia. Uh, I mean, the Czech Republic roster is absolutely loaded. This team, they've, they've won six times since 2011. They actually haven't won since 2018. But you you read off these names here. Marketa Vondrasova is coming. Despite playing the WTA Finals, she's still coming. Karolina Muhova is on the roster. Seven-time doubles champions, Barbara Krajcikova and Katarina Siniakova, both there. And they're both formidable singles players, especially Krajcikova, who's a French Open champion. I mean, this is a completely loaded roster, top to bottom. They're dangerous in singles. They're probably the strongest in doubles. I feel like this is the team to beat. Yeah, there's so much depth there. And and again, the fact that you've got Von Druzova, who's coming from you know the WTA finals, that speaks to how important this is for her. Just like with Gabby, uh, in doubles, they're always very, very difficult. It was nice to see Gabby and Aaron Routliff actually beat the Czech team in the WTA finals. Uh, that was a big win for them. Um, yeah, I'm excited for this. Can't wait to see what happens. Really expecting Leilani Fernandez to kind of step up for Canada and sort of carry the team on her back as she's going to be counted on in both singles and doubles. And, you know, it's incredible to think how young she is and yet how much is expected of her and, and what role she plays for Canada now, you know, especially with Bianca out still with that back injury. So, um, you know, good for Layla. And and I think she's in a, a place mentally and physically right now where this is the best time for her to represent uh, her country on this stage. Yeah, definitely. And I, I really think she thrives in this type of competitive atmosphere, even if it's against Spain. Uh, you know, USA, we'll have to watch for as well. No Coco Goff or Pagula, but Danielle Collins, Sophia Kennan, Sloane Stevens, all there. So they will be dangerous as well. We will shift over to 
our interview, my interview, I suppose, of the week, and Hadam McDaddy, who's who's played such a massive role at Tennis Canada and, and been part of these team events in the past. He's a former coach and player. He was alongside uh, Daniel Nestor's historic 2000 Olympic gold medal in doubles, and uh, he's actually now retiring and leaving his role as a senior VP of High Performance Development. But great to catch up uh, with Hadam. For those who do know him, uh, his role has just been instrumental with with Tennis Canada and the development uh, of our players over the past 20, 30 years. Yeah, look at what's happened over that time. Look at what's happened since he started there compared to where Canada is now. And you mentioned it in your interview about the golden age of Canadian tennis, which we've said time and time again, and how true it is. And in part, it's, you know, people like Adam behind the scenes who are doing this work. And, uh, you know, five years, congratulations. You know, so impressive to spend that much time with an organization. And and not just be there for a length of time, but accomplish so much over that time. So very excited to share, you know, here it is, Ben, your interview with, uh, with Adam McDaddy. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada, and very happy to be joined by Haddam McDaddy, our uh, Senior Vice President of High Performance at Tennis Canada, also a former ATP player and a uh, first time coming on the podcast. Haddam, thanks so much uh, for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to start off and say congratulations because I understand your career is, uh, you know, finally wrapping up with, with Tennis Canada. Um, but I, I suppose you're going to continue on in 2024 in a part-time capacity. What's what's the long journey been uh, been like for you uh, over the years with with Tennis Canada? Well, you know, tennis has been in my blood and part of my life as a youngster, and uh, it's been an incredible journey. And and at Tennis Canada, 25 years, um, and. I look back and and look back with so much pride, but I I, I see the journey as very meaningful with um, you know all the partners and the families and the board staff and the provinces and you know you have a passion for something um, and many of us do with tennis and you want to see how tennis can bring meaning to people's lives and improve it whether you come to the National Bank Open presented by Rogers and get joy watching the best players in the world or get inspired when Bianca wins the U.S. Open um, or we win the Davis Cup or just as people uh, get healthy and enjoy the sport. So I, you know, there's so many great memories, but um, the people along the way and the impact and to see our growth in, in our sport and to see the historic and the high performance inspiration that's inspired, you know, starting from Daniel Nestor and Sebastian Leroux winning the Olympic gold in Sydney when we only had three gold medals that year with Simon Whitfield and Daniel Igali, and they won it. Um, and, you know, culminating with the Davis Cup win in 2022 and everything in between. Yeah, it's it's been an unbelievable journey, I think, for our nation in the in this sport and the achievements we've we've managed especially the the past few years but even as you mentioned uh winning olympic gold back in in the year 2000 it's been quite a journey for you and i i know you are a former player yourself where did you grow up when did you start playing and and sort of gain that passion for tennis and decide you wanted to to pursue it even further yeah you know grew up in um mississauga um in the lorne park area and had passion for all sports, uh, but tennis, uh, once once I tried it, loved it, and you grew up at Cobblestone Courts. Don Steele 
was uh, leading and, and Don Steele was uh, one of the early executive directors at Tennis Canada as well. But the likes of Glenn Michibata, Jill Hetherington, there's a great group there. Um, yeah, and just uh, just loved it and, and just knew that wanted to uh, be involved in tennis and give back um, and help others enjoy the great sport. Uh, but yeah, it's been quite the journey starting from a youngster. That's that's very cool. How, how long did that pro career last for you? And are there any highlights that really stand out? Uh, yeah, um, it, it was uh, from ages 18, 19 to 24, 25. Um, I, you know, one of the highlights certainly was um, playing Pat Cash on center court at the National Bank Open. It was presented by Rogers. Um, back then, it was the Canadian Open and Jimmy Arias in Mon- Jimmy Arias in Montreal. There, you know, Pat Cash was a Wimbledon champion, and Jimmy Arias was top four. And just having the experience of traveling the world and and trying to make a living playing tennis um, was, and just really understanding how difficult of a sport it is. Uh, it's it's a grind. Uh, you know, there's very few people who make it to the highest level, but what a great character builder. And I think th- those are the things that stand out. You, you learn to prepare the dedication, the hard work, managing the stress you're on your own on the court. And I admire the athletes and the families that do it now. It's not easy. And the commitment and the dedication and the resources uh, required. So a lot of that really stands out, but certainly, um, those things do stand out the journey along the way and and just the people you meet and um and the memories this might be a difficult question to to answer but you know i i always say with my co-host mike that we're in the golden age of tennis in in canada uh, specifically with the results we've had and, and the players we've had come up over the fa- past five to ten years um from your perspective maybe how, how do we get here <laughs> It's a great question, but I I do think we have to really give credit to so many people that laid the foundation. Um, And, and, you know, it starts with the private sector, the work, a lot of dedicated coaches. It actually starts with the families and the the parents. And and I do think there were some breakthrough moments and, you know, Milos and Jeannie um, in singles, Daniel and... um, and Sebastian Leroux in doubles and Jill Hetherington and Carling and Helen Kalesi and Patricia Hiboulet and Glenn Michibata. There's so many along the way, uh, but also the likes of, you know, Don Steele, Bob Moffitt, Pierre Lamarche, uh, Robert Bettauer, Wendy Patton, and Louis Borfiga, Bob Rett, uh, Ari Novick, Debbie Kirkwood. There's so many people that have given um, the, the families, the private sector, the provinces and then the people at Tennis Canada and the board over the years. And, and certainly Michael Downey um, coming on board was, you know, really instrumental um, and, and the tournaments acting as world-class events. They're really the engines um, of, of giving us the resources and the high performance acts as an inspiration. So when you have breakthrough moments, more people get excited and inspired and, want to follow and hopefully play. And that's our not-for-profit mandate to grow, promote, and develop our sport. It's such a great sport. And, you know, so you you look at that, but, um, you know, Louis Borfiga coming with Bob Rett uh, back in 2006, 2007, working with all the great Canadian coaches, but putting a system in place 
um, a system that included club support, competition, coaching, training, regional, national centers, support for athletes to get to the highest level because once you get out of juniors, the resources required to compete among the best in the Grand Slam niche is, is significant. So, you know, putting that system in place in a pathway that could be replicated. And, and then the breakthrough moments of Milos and Genies and the youngsters underneath them, the Biancas, the Felix, the Leilas, and the ones coming up now saying, wow, we can do this. And we believe, and there's a culture of belief of winning and being among the best in the world. And similar to what we have in hockey, instead of just, we're going to be there and show up. And there's a lot of people and families and, um, and a lot of parts that came together. Um, so I, I think it's a culmination of all the past and present and, and the future looks really bright with the likes of Guillaume Marx and Jocelyn Robichaud and Janet Petrus and Eva and others in our organization and our new CEO, Gavin Ziv, um, and the senior management team. It's phenomenal. So I think it'll continue and just incredibly proud looking back at all that. Yeah, the the growth has just been un- unbelievable, and you described that well. And mentioning Tennis Canada's high performance uh, department, I, I understand um, a, a change is coming there in terms of a new pathway for players. Um, can you tell tell us a little bit about this new pathway, maybe the idea and, and concept around it, and how you think it'll benefit juniors? Well, it, it, you, you know, we built um, collectively with our, our private sector partners and, and the provinces maybe 15 years ago, the long-term athlete development model and pathway in sport for life. So it basically identifies um, the, what is required uh, at various stages and ages, youngsters to teen years to the transition uh, pro stages, and then ultimately tennis for life the number of hours of training, and they're all guidelines, but they're based on best practices. Um, the number of competitions, um, programs, it, it really lays it all out there. So you just, you want to get into tennis, you know, from when you start active start age five, six, right up to whether you go to Canadian University, NCAA, or play pro or become a Grand Slam champion, or Davis Cup or Billie Jean King Cup champion. But ultimately, you want to stay in the sport. And what we did is in the last couple of years with our partners, um, refreshed it. And uh, the previous pathway uh, for high performance, especially, just really had one pathway. You, you come out of juniors and you go for it. But but what we found, and, and it was more early initiation and specialization, but what we found looking historically at the likes of um, Ben Shelton or Ash Barty or Serena or, or Rafa or Roger, we looked at everybody and said, there's different pathways. And there's it's really important for some to have multi-sport when they're young. And that is okay because, you know, look at Ben Shelton right now that... Um, was playing f- football and didn't, spe- didn't really actually go all in in tennis till he was 15 or 16 or, or Yannick Sinner or Ash Barty that played cricket and tennis. Um, so we identified various pathways um, and it depends on the individuals. Maybe some youngsters need to go to uh, university, NCAA, to physically and emotionally and, and mentally mature. Um, while others are really early matures and are ready to play pro at a young age, um, depending on 
their 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 makeup and their you know where they're at. So it's really exciting. We we're gonna uh, be launching it, uh, I believe, in the next week. Um, but a lot of the stakeholders have that information in advance. Uh, but it does give a roadmap uh, for families and youngsters and partners and coaches to say, hey. I've got this athlete, this is where they fit in, and this is what they should be doing based on the pathway they're on. It's not one pathway for all. Yeah, I, I love that concept. And uh, as you mentioned, Davis Cup, that's also around the corner. And uh, I, I know, I believe you were there in Spain last last year, correct? Okay. Uh, I, I was. It was unbelievable. It was, you know, just how the stars aligned because that it and and we have Billie Jean King Cup around the corner as well we um and um we we believe you know with Layla and Gabby and the team um Rebecca and and Marina and um and the entire team Jeannie's on the team we believe we can um really go for it um and the Davis Cup we've got a great team as well but uh they're around the corner the team is uh very well prepared with Heidi is the Billie Jean King Cup captain and Frank with the Davis Cup. They're ready to go and it would be incredible to repeat for the Davis Cup. And, and you know, we believe we can win both uh, this year. It, it's it's very difficult. It's, the you know, it, it's so many things have to happen. You understand the journey. When it happens, you go, wow, it did happen. But all these things, whether last year Felix had to beat Alcaraz, um, in Spain, uh, if we lose, if he loses that and he's down a set and he loses that and we're done. And in the doubles, um, uh, Felix and uh, Vasek were down five, three in the third against Spain. If we lose that, we're done. If either, you know, there so many things had to happen and, um, and the same journey with Billie Jean King Cup. So we'll, we'll see what happens, but the teams believe and they're excited and they'll be well prepared. Are, are you going to both events? Uh, you know what? We've got a great group going. I'm going to stay back and okay. uh, watch watch back home. Uh, but I must say the joy and the excitement last year when Frank and, and Guillaume and the team and Felix and Dennis and Vasek and Gab and, and Alexi won it. It was incredible. It was such a... A, a moment you'll never forget to be world champions and to see it all come together and and to watch uh, the, the team come together as well. But um, cherish that for life, uh, but we'll be watching this year from home for both events. That's that's great. Well, Adam, thanks so much uh, for, for taking the time and really all you've done for, for Tennis Canada and the growth of so many of our juniors. Uh, I think you've left such a long lasting impact on, on this sport and in the country. And we really appreciate that. Oh, it, it, the sport's given exponentially back. And I'm, I'm just grateful to be uh, part of um, Canadian tennis. And, and I look forward to cheering from the sidelines. But we've, the future is so, so bright with Gavin, our new CEO, and the high-performance team, and the development team, and the senior management team. But Ben, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. There you have it, my conversation with Adam McDaddy, who uh, in this case will not be down there for the Davis Cup Finals or the Billie Jean King Cup Finals, and uh, gets to watch uh, from the couch, maybe a little less stressful, uh, as I mentioned. But uh, I mean, he must be 
just filled with so much joy. Probably last year, seeing them break through and win the Davis Cup and, and just seeing all these incredible results year after year from, from Canadian players. I, I like how he says that he believes that we can win, you know, Canada can win both Billie Jean King Cup and Davis Cup. And I see no reason why that can't happen. We'll yeah. have more on Davis Cup, you know, in the weeks ahead as it's coming up a little bit after Billie Jean King Cup. But nonetheless, I don't think that's him putting on his, you know, Team Canada hat and and being biased. I think that's a legitimate, realize, you know, realistic expectation that they can compete for it, at least this year, uh, in both those, you know, men's and women's events. Um, I, I like a couple of times that he mentioned the impact of Milos Raonic and Jeannie Bouchard in terms of progressing Canadian tennis forward. And, um, you know, he said, 25 years with Tennis Canada, my goodness, I think we've done five, almost completed our fifth as the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We've only got 20 more to go, Ben. So, uh, you know, there. hey. Hang on, we're getting there, right? 20% done, I suppose. Uh, as we segue over to uh, men's tennis, uh, you know, how far is Novak Djokovic from done? Because you watch the tennis he produces on the court, and it seems like the end is nowhere uh, in sight with the level he's producing here. He wins his record seventh Paris Masters 1000, his record 40th Masters 1000 title, defeating Grigor Dimitrov in the final in straight sets. And, and just what an unbelievable week where he battled adversity, wins three tough three-setters, started with a, a surprising three-setter against Tyon Griekspor, where he said he was kind of battling a stomach bug, found his way through, beat Holger Runa, who he lost that epic final to last year, avenges that loss with a three-set win. Uh, for me, the match of the tournament was his victory over Andre Rublev, an absolute grueling battle between those two sets. Seven five in the third, and then a little more comfortable in the final. I mean, we see it time and time again. Novak is the very best. Absolutely, and uh, it was interesting. I was listening to his post match, post championship press conference, and he said something about uh, how at this stage of his career, and then he kind of stopped himself, and he was like, "Actually, I'm I'm not really sure what stage of my career I'm at." Like. Even he doesn't know how much longer it's going to go. And and he doesn't sound like it's uh, imminently coming to a close. And and how could it when you're playing like this? And and he was full on admitting and good for him to say, like, I'm not ashamed to admit it, that I'm chasing the records, that I want to have as much as I can. I want to achieve as much as I can. And who would feel differently? What professional tennis player? I saw him getting flack for that kind of comment from some people. And my goodness, everyone, you know, there's going to be people that are always going to find something to pick at with Djokovic. But Honestly, what professional tennis player player is going to say anything different when they're in a position to do anything close to what he's doing? Exactly. And uh, I mean, the number of records and achievements that he already has. <laughs> I mean, he has almost everything. And actually, th this number never even crossed my mind a couple of years ago or even last year. But now you see Novak Djokovic up to 97 career titles. The conversation existed with Roger Federer. Could he catch Jimmy Connors 109 career singles titles as a record? And now Djokovic just 12 away. That seems like it's a possibility if he yeah. has two to three more quality seasons without a doubt he could achieve that and that seemed like a possibility for roger too who got even closer and obviously injuries were what derailed that pursuit and so that's the only thing in my mind that can stop Djokovic from getting there and you never know what can happen like he's 36 years old he seems pretty fresh out there but still like at some point the body's gonna say hey i can't take it anymore like we saw with roger like potentially we're seeing with rafa Djokovic is likely going to get to that stage too. You can't, how can you avoid that as you get older competing, you know, even as much as 
even with the breaks, he hadn't played since the U.S. Open, but still at that level. So I think that's the only obstacle that potentially could derail that pursuit. Um, and boy, it's going to be fun to, to see if he can do it for sure. That yeah. and, you know, he's always beating and, and equaling and, and adding to his own records. I mean, he's on the cusp of 400 weeks as world number one. These are just mind-boggling accomplishments that he continues to achieve and, and push the boundaries of the sport even further. Yeah, it's it's really astounding. Um, huge kudos to the week that Grigor Dimitrov produced, by the way, reaching his second career Masters 1000 final. Along the way, gets an incredible win over Daniil Medvedev in the round of 32. He took out Stefano Tsitsipas, 7-6 in the third in that semifinal, had a big win over Hubert Hurkacz as well. Just a phenomenal week and a phenomenal fall, honestly. Uh, he played well in Vienna the previous week, pushed Medvedev there. He played great in Shanghai, where he made the semifinals. And he's back inside the the top 15 and I, I think Rigor was a name that a lot of people had maybe not forgotten about but certainly not taken seriously as one of these contenders anymore uh, but he is a former world number three he won the ATP finals back in 2017 and here he is at age 32 now playing some of the best tennis of his career yeah not forgotten about but I think dismissed is maybe the word when it comes to Grigor Dimitrov that people did not believe that he could get back to this level you know, in his early 30s. But, you know, the last of his three slam semifinals was back in 2019 at the U.S. Open. I had forgotten that he won the 2017 ATP finals, albeit against a bit of a weaker field with the likes of David Gaffey and, and Jack Sock there. I think the big three were kind of hurting. But nonetheless, uh, good for him. They called him baby fed for a reason. So much talent. And he's clearly got so much of that. Yeah, uh, silky smooth game. Uh, always one of the the favorites of mine, uh, at least to watch aesthetically. He, he plays such beautiful tennis. We have more tennis to come this week. Billie Jean King Cup Finals, where Canada will be uh, competing in Group C against Poland and Spain. So watch out for our coverage there. Guys, you've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time. <laughs>